Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. Welcome to Sprogcast. In episode 31, we are bringing you two interviews related to infant feeding. So we've got Amy Brown talking about her new book or new-ish book. And we've got Alison Thewlis, MP, explaining how she's bringing breastfeeding into every possible bill going through Parliament, which is really fascinating stuff. I'm Karen Hall and he's Mark Harris. Hi, Karen. How, how are you? I'm doing all right. In a while. We've, we've been so busy over the summer. This is our first yeah. opportunity to speak to each other in about three months, isn't it? Yeah, at least that. Yeah, although we're getting together soon for Sprogcast Live. Yes. So, so on the day that this episode is released, you have got three days left to buy your ticket for Sprogcast Live in Leeds, 28th of October, two o'clock in the afternoon in a lovely church in Round Hay, um, which is a very nice park where the kids can go and play while you come and listen to Mark and me chatting with Sheena Byram, Mia Scotland, Rinica Schramm, Fran Bailey and Claire Harbottle. Interesting people. Yeah, well, to be honest, I think uh, as we're recording now, we've sold about 70 tickets and, and we certainly have an audience big enough to record a show, but we'd we'd like more people there. So if, if you're hearing about it for the first time, you've still got time to buy a ticket and come along. And we like to bring things to the north. Oh, yeah. I think we've done two now in London, haven't we? Yeah. And we, we, we did get requests to come to come north so uh so here we are in the north come and get it so there's that coming up quite soon um and you've been busy doing some training lately yeah i uh what have i done i did i did a, a introduction to the model of nlp and birth workers with students in swansea i, I saw them tweeting all about it they loved it did they like it yeah i didn't, I didn't read the tweets oh, i tell you I, I, it went very well uh, it's, it's always a great opportunity to talk with students at various stages in their training, you know, first years, second years, third years. And um, usually it's the stuff that I do around language that seems to really make an impact. So, yeah. And I think it's really important that you're doing that. I think yeah. at every single level in maternity care, that is a conversation that needs to be had about language. The thing is, though, you know, that as you talk about it, and, and in the context of the model of NLP, uh, so some of the understandings are a little bit counterintuitive that people are being introduced to. But at, very, at its very foundation, it, it's kind of obvious, really. You know, the kind of language and the ways of speaking with women and their partners that, that are more likely to, to leave the new family with a story about the birth which is going to be enhancing for them it's obvious to you but it's not universally obvious there are a lot of people who do not have that awareness really yes okay i i mean just a little thing like we were chatting and i i tell the story about when i did a return to practice and I had to be watched doing a booking interview. Uh, and I said to the couple, these are the bloods we invite you to take. I remember you've said this story before. I've got a, an up-to-date version of it for you, if you like. Yeah, go on. We had our maternity voices meeting at the hospital on Monday. And the consultant obstetrician said she's put up a list of green words and red words. And she's um, encouraging people when talking about induction to use the phrase we would like to offer you the opportunity for an induction. It's all right. 
it's improvement, isn't it? There are still some presuppositions in it that are interesting. Well, yes. The presupposition that an induction is an opportunity. I know. <laughs> yeah, that one's that that sticks a little. It's, it's the opportunity to potentially have more intervention. It's better than you will need to have your baby induced. Yes, it's it's better than you are being induced. It's, it's less better... passive as well. Yeah. Like, is, is this just something that will be done to you in order to to save your baby? Yeah. Who is quite clearly fine at this point. Yeah. I, I think I'm more when we had Claire Harbottle on when she was talking about the work that she as an independent midwife is doing with the trusts up there in Leeds. You know, they've got sort of like honorary contracts. Mm. And she was saying how they managed to get the trust to change its language around risk assessment. Do you remember the uh, the trust said, well, each one of the women in your caseload will have to have a meeting with someone from the trust. And the trust wanted to call it a risk assessment or a risk management assessment. Mm. And um, they, they managed to have that changed to an informed consent meeting. Good. So just that simple change of language changes the way the way that people on the end of it experience yeah it reframes it totally yeah, and completely. even if we're not totally happy yet we're not 100% there we probably never will be no. but it's it's steps forward isn't it yeah and it's it's a good thing so yeah i was doing that in swansea we're, we're getting close to finding out whether you're going to be president or not yes well d voting closes on the 25th on broadcast day so We'll find out shortly after that, I guess. On the actual day, day that this podcast goes live. Yeah. So if you haven't voted by now. Too late. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can vote on the 25th or if it's all finished. Anyway. Tell me, you probably can't answer this, but don't you have any sense of how the voting's no, going? No sense whatsoever. Right. It's not like we can do exit polls. No, no, I suppose not. So, still waiting. No. Although, although the voting's all online, isn't it? Yeah. So there must be a running total. Presumably, but I'm not aware of it. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> anyway. That's cool. This broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter & Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and fiction at pinterandmartin.com. Um, I've got a copy here of Michelle O'Dont's new book, The Birth of Homo, the Marine Chimpanzee. So that's a book and you can buy it. Um <laughs> We're also on facebook.com slash Sprogcast, which is where you can find out all about everything we're doing and engage with us. Yeah. And we're on Twitter at Sprogcast. I am champing at the bit to read um, Michelle O'Donnell's new book. I've dipped into it, but, but I am intrigued by uh, his emphasis on epigenetics. Uh -huh. And I know that this book has caused quite a bit of controversy. Right. Because people are, some people are saying he's overstating the case. He is overstating the case. Uh, and and that in overstating the case, he, the danger is uh, reinforcing the guilt that women feel anyway around, uh, inverted commas, failure in the context of birth. And frankly, damaging his own credibility. Do you think so? Yes. Well, what, what leads you to that? Well, really, his, his premise that um, man is a, a marine chimpanzee is... Uh, it, it exists it's a theory it's out there but it's widely discredited yeah the evidence base that he uses to discuss um, water birth is is frankly not an evidence base no um the, he, he offers some cultural evidence but it's a little thin and i don't think you can really make these kind of statements just on the basis of paintings and myths no there is i suppose there is the, the diving reflex that 
that babies uh, are born with. That doesn't prove that we came out of the sea. No, no, God, no. Don't, 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 don't hear me as defending yeah. the no. uh, the argument. I. Yeah. So for you, the science is flawed. Deeply. Yeah, it's in 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 a way you wonder whether uh, whether it's his own cognitive bias at work, right? Well, it is, isn't it? This, this well, he obviously believes it. Yeah, if the, you know what they say, if, the, if your only tools a hammer, every problem's a nail. Well, and interestingly, that is kind of his case when he's talking about cesarean, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I do think that epigenetics is going to be a massive area of science that's going to be very influential. I think it's going to be a massive area of science. Yeah. So did you you went silent there. No, I I finished my sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Full yeah, stop. yeah. But it is it is such an emerging area of science that that when when people make claims based on it, um I think I think you're right. There is a there is a chance of of discrediting yourself. And it sort of takes the focus off. It's like with the microbiome thing, isn't yeah. it? It takes the focus off the things we do know, the things we can yeah, do, yeah. the things we should be working on. Yeah. It's good that these theories are out there and they're being researched and it's and the science is being done, but I don't think we're ready for it. Do I sound no. I sound like a right old conservative, don't I? Well, you don't. You don't. <gasps> I, I I mean I'm in a, a at least one forum uh, where there's a on Facebook where there's a mix of people who would be on both ends of the birth extreme mm. uh, when it comes to normal birth and safety do you, do you, yes i'm, you I'm know, aware of the forum i'm not on it yeah well i'm i'm on it and um it's very interesting and i've posted on it a couple of times and and very often you know it's a, it's a what's happening is a clash of epistemologies it's kind of it's a clash of how people think and feel about the evidence you know people from both sides of the debate use the word evidence like we all know what we mean mm. and obviously people have different criteria and different ways of evaluating evidence and 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 that that in a way there's always going to be a clash at that point until we have that discussion you know on one side of the debate it's the only evidence that people are willing to uh listen to or respond to are is the fruit of a randomized controlled trial you know so if you can't do a randomized controlled trial about it you're not gonna you're not gonna arrive at any evidence that's worthwhile or useful well we need trials to be able to look at demonstrable effects and to be able to make decisions but i absolutely agree that these things need to be applied in the context of all the human factors Exactly. And, and so so the the methodology of a randomized control trial, ideally blinded in some way, lends itself to testing certain hypotheses, but it won't generate evidence in whole whole swathes of kind of issues around birth. I mean, I'll give you one, for example, whether you put your fingers on the baby's head as the woman is pushing the baby out or not. There's a study going on at the moment, which is a randomized controlled trial, uh, randomizing groups to midwives' fingers on the head or midwives' fingers not on the head. What's the hypothesis? The hypothesis is that uh, putting fingers on the head uh, reduces perineal trauma so that you, you're able to 
uh, guide the baby out, you know, the, all this kind of stuff. And why is that impossible to do? Well, it's, in, it's impossible to test through a randomised controlled trial because of the amount of variables that you'd have to include in any kind of study. Well, that just means you need a very, very big sample size. Uh, yeah, but even then, what about position the woman is in for birth? What about the amount of pressure that the midwife is putting? on the baby's head through her fingers. That one is more difficult. What about what about whether uh, she is using valsalvas, you know, chin on your chest push, or the woman is just pushing with her own body? If she is pushing with her own body, how long is the push lasting and how many of them are there per contraction? Then, then you have to look at her nutritional status throughout the pregnancy because surely her nutritional status will have an impact on tissue viability. But this is exactly the kind of thing that scientists are, are doing when they do that kind of trial. They're listing all of those variables and they're controlling them. They are, but you realise that that kind of methodology, a randomised controlled trial, is not suited for testing all of the things that we have questions about. It certainly isn't suited for that trial that I've just spoken about. You know, but so so all I'm saying is there are other methodologies that that add equal weight when it comes to looking at evidence. The reason we're so fixated on randomized controlled trials, in my opinion, is that the power holders inside medicine have historically been men, been men. So there is this inclination towards a certain methodology. Uh, and the other thing is that we, we insist on uh, treating midwifery and birth like it's a science. So how would you make the decision whether to put your fingers on the baby head, baby's head or not? Well, me, I, I just made a choice very early on not to have my hands anywhere near a woman because I saw that when my hands were there, I was in some way intruding upon her ability to respond instinctively to what was going on in her body. Mm. And, of course, if my finger's on the baby's head, I'm looking at her vagina. You know, she's being observed. Her ability to move is being inhibited. So I kind of decided intuitively that not touching was the way to go. Hmm. Uh, that was it. I mean, I, I think we could do we could do phenomenological studies, I guess, yeah. around women, uh, women's experience of um, having the midwife put her hands yeah. on. And that head. kind of qualitative data would be really, really useful in making that sort of decision as well, because you're, you are making that decision as a male midwife, which is slightly different to a woman making that decision as well. But at the end of the day, really, it should be the birthing woman who makes the decision, not you. Yeah, I'm with you. So yeah, very interesting. Mm. And, and of course, all of this uh, goes back to one of our reoccurring themes. The minute I believe I'm right about anything, I'm on dodgy ground. Well, there's you believing you're right about where your fingers should be. Well, yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. there's also going to be a whole load of things that you ethically can't put in a randomised control trial, like breastfeeding. Yeah. You take large population-based studies there and look um, on a longitudinal basis. So yeah. there are different ways of looking at different things. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah. It's nice when we agree, isn't it? Uh, shall we slot an interview in? Let's listen to Amy. All right, then. This is Amy Brown, and she's brought out a new book about introducing solids from the Why It Matters series with Pinter and Martin. And um, here she is telling us some of her thoughts. So 
So this morning I am welcoming back Amy Brandis Broadcast because she was on our very first live show and she's also agreed now to be on um, this episode to talk to us about her relatively new book Why Starting Solids Matters and that subject matter as a whole. Good morning Amy. Good morning. It's so nice to have you back. It's so lovely to be back. So you've got another baby. I do, a, a brand brand new baby and all about solids this time rather than just milk feeding but we do manage to squeeze some some bits in there about follow-on formula and yes industry again yeah I wanted to talk to you about the social and commercial pressures on parents when it comes to starting solids because this is fascinating to me um I think it kind of goes under the radar a bit we're so kind of focused on obviously the huge impact that formula advertising and follow-on milk follow uh, advertising has that it kind of we don't see it as much, but I think it's just as pervasive. It's just, it's there. It's kind of pressurizing parents to do things in a certain way, to buy certain things, to buy things they don't need. There's a whole range of products just like you can buy um, to go with milk feeding and stuff like that. I mean, I started Googling and looking on Amazon and you could buy high chairs that are over a thousand pounds. Just, just why? Why would you need a thousand pound high chair? Anyway. Yes, because <laughs> they get so disgusting and then you want to bin them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the thing that encourages parents to buy the most unnecessary stuff? Oh, wow. Well, it's certainly in the top three, I think. You don't need products for weaning. You might need, well, a high chair is fine. Spoons, yeah, maybe a bowl, maybe. But there is all this stuff you can buy. There's these machines that you can buy that all kind of puree food for you and then squidge it into little tubes and you start, you start thinking of the hygiene of it and how on earth you're going to clean it and then you just think well why on earth why 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 do we need this just feed your baby what you're eating maybe puree it if you want to puree it but babies can eat what we eat there's no need for special foods there's no need for a special market but I guess that's what they exist on and creating that belief that we need them and we need these products and we need this stuff I mean I talk about it in in the first section of the book that if you go back about 100 110 years maybe there was no concept of baby food you just gave your baby some of your food when they were approaching around one they seem to think would it have been mashed a bit it would have been mashed a bit from the documents and what there is it seemed to be you know, it wasn't this big fuss. It wasn't this big industry thing. But then came along the baby food industry and completely changed how we give our babies solid foods and when we give them. There was this whole sort of canned food industry that kind of emerged mainly in the United States and kind of spread over here in about, I think it was about the 1920s. They, there was still no concept of baby food, but there was this concept of canned foods that you could buy for the first time. And then there's, it's, what was his name? I can't think what his name is. I think it was, oh, it's in the book. Can't remember what he's called. Um, I have to buy it to find out. Um, is, it, is it Daniel Gerber? <laughs> yeah, Daniel Gerber's wife, Dorothy, was so tired of having to laborious, laboriously hand strain vegetables. Oh, there we go. And I think, I think there was someone before him as well. Oh, maybe I'm making this up now, but I think there was someone else. Um, and then suddenly... You go fast forward like five years and there's this entire baby food industry, all these different types of baby food you can buy in cans. And the weaning age has come lower and lower and lower. And you look at sort of the, the 40s and the 50s and people were weaning at six weeks. 
There are weaning schedules from doctors in the 50s that suggest that you should have food, specific foods for babies whilst they were still in the hospital after being born. It's, it's craziness and it's brought about by product sales, by trying to create a market. The earlier you get parents to give solids to their babies, the more money you make. And that's the simple basis to it, really. It is. So are we saying that um, advertising a commercial product has actually changed what parents want? Well, it's told parents subtly and less subtly what they want. And I don't think it's what they want. I think it's what they're anxious about. And I think that's an important difference. There are so many anxieties around, is my baby getting enough? Should they be having it yet? What should they have? Um, Is my cooking good enough for them? Is there enough nutrients in what I'm giving them? And up pops a baby food range with these little pretty little jars of all these different flavors saying it's organic and this and that and only the finest vegetables and don't have to worry about, you know, cooking things for your baby and, and feels a solution to the anxiety that they've created. It's it's quite clever if you think about it in one way. Make parents worry and then give them the product to solve that worry. They are cute products though. They are cute. They you, are cute. You can get pasta in the shape of Peter Rabbit characters and I think that's important. <laughs> Elephants and all sorts. <laughs> <laughs> they are well, it, it's part of marketing, isn't it? It's sweet, it's attractive. There's little tiny jars you can get. Um you can see why they're appealing. The problem is, is it's not the same as making food for your baby yourself. Now, I'm not going to be some martyr and say that you should be standing by the stove every day creating this whole range of special foods for your baby. But babies need to eat what we're eating. They need to eat a variety of nutrients, a variety of tastes, a variety of textures, picking things up, playing with them, mashing them, dropping them for the cat. It's all part of learning about food. If you're very carefully spoon-fed something out of a jar neatly every meal, it's not the same learning experience. No. And what I think um, probably the only message, I was going to actually ask you this, but I'm going to answer it instead of asking it. Um, The only message really that health professionals need to be giving parents is to to keep on giving milk alongside introducing some food reliant on the fact that they can the babies can get a huge range of nutrients from milk still exactly and the baby food industry try to kind of make out that suddenly milk becomes defunct and there's no nutrients in it and suddenly on the stroke of midnight at six months your baby is suddenly iron deficient and deficient in vitamin d and deficient in everything and desperately needs lots of food they don't what they need is experience yes they need to eat a little bit of food but at six months, you're really only talking about tastes. Six to eight months, it's about 175 calories they need from solid foods each day. The rest should be milk. The bulk should be from milk. And you gradually increase that as they go on. So it's more about offering them things So and not worrying about it too much. It's almost like the offering and the exploring it and the experiencing the new taste, whether you like it or not, is just as important let's say rather than more important than them actually eating anything it's about learning and you don't get that if you're just using jarred food but the other thing about um jarred foods and first steps nutrition and helen Helen crawley have done a fantastic report on this that okay so jarred food is sufficient it's not dangerous the vast majority of parents are going to give it some to their baby at some point But if you're just giving commercially produced 
jarred products. The issue is that a lot of them are very high in sugar. They're far too sweet, which gives a baby too much sugar, but also encourages that development of that sweet tough. And there are studies that show that babies who eat a very high proportion of commercial products as babies are more likely to be overweight as uh, preschool children. They're more likely to have a very sugary diet because of that that sugar link, that, that setting up that kind of eating pattern. And I think going off on a tangent, I'm back to one of my main points. I think the most important thing when you introduce solids to your baby is think about the experience of it. What are they learning from the experience of that solids? What is it adding to them? And complementary feeding is meant to be just that. It's complementary to the milk diet. It's about experiences, it's about new things, it's about trying things. So given that most of our listeners are health professionals, what can or how how can health professionals support parents with this? In the, in the book, there are there are ten key steps that I come up with, the ten important things um to think about. And I've written a, a an article, a blog on on HuffPost about it, this this concept of laid back weaning, so ten steps to laid back weaning. And I think the absolute let's say the the three most important things the very most important thing is to encourage parents to be responsive so by that it means not forcing their baby to eat when they clearly don't want it to offer a range of choices and let babies explore let them taste but not to worry too much because that's one of the biggest things isn't it is my baby getting enough do they need to eat more do I need to get more into them so actually both of those two things go all the way back to newborn don't they the responsiveness and the concern over how much the baby is eating yes but if you if you think about it logically often the first foods we give babies and particularly if you're spoon feeding babies it will be a fruit or a vegetable puree carrot puree apple puree are two of the most most important most important and that's a slip of the tongue um commonly used um now if you think about it why would giving your baby lots of carrot fill them up make them grow it's about the taste yes it's about the experience but carrot puree is really low in calories so if you're actually worried about how much your baby is growing or how much energy your baby is getting you're better off just giving them some more milk breastfeed them a bit more Give them a little bit more milk in the in their bottle, or feed them more frequently if you're bottle feeding. Carrot is not going to fill them up and make them gain weight. If you're worried about that, just like us, we wouldn't eat carrot to gain weight. <laughs> now, interestingly, no, we'd do the opposite, wouldn't we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> interestingly, um, I used to run introducing solids workshops, and basically, people would be paying me to say what you've just said. Um, <laughs> don't worry about it. Just give them milk food's just as a taster enjoy it and relax and those sessions did not evaluate well people were very dissatisfied with that and Mm -hmm. I can confidently say it's not me my breastfeeding sessions evaluate really well so it's the subject matter and the fact that parents who are anxious about this really really want to be told how to do it there are a lot of anxieties in general around babies when they get to about four, five, six months. There's a big growth spurt, a big developmental leap at about four months. And I think this is where a lot of the anxiety about early solids comes from. That studies have actually tracked how much babies um, feed and how much they wake up in the night 
show that they often kind of get a little bit better and a little bit better to about three months. And then at about four months, it all seems to go wrong. Mm. Wrong um, in our perception of it. It's not wrong developmentally. It's what they're meant to be doing. They're having this big growth spurt, so they need more milk. Um, when they're kind of making these big developmental leaps, they wake up more because their brain's so active. And it, it happens at about four months. And if you leave them, they go back to sleeping as they were before. Because it wasn't anything to do with hunger like we think it is. It's to do with other areas of the development because we seem to attribute everything a baby does to how hungry they are. So if we think they wake up at night, that must be because they're hungry. No, we wake up at night. I'm 35. I wake up a lot at night. It's not because I need some carrot puree. It's never worked. I've tried it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it, it they wake up because they're cold, because they need the nappy change, because they've just woken up, because they want to be close to somebody. Things that happen to us, but we can't solve ourselves. Um, babies can't solve themselves. So, but I think all the anxiety comes around like that. And I think I talk about when I talk about breastfeeding, I talk about the concept of the good baby and how we're all meant to have good babies, and it's a sign of being a good parent as such. When good babies aren't what we think they are. There's this kind of idea in society that good babies should, you know, sleep through the night and they should be settled and they should be easy and laid back. And I think that's not normal developmental baby behavior. Babies are, uh, want to be held. They wake up lots. Um, they like being entertained. It, it's just normal. But I think we think we can we can solve it. So I think often some parents who get very anxious, they want to be told that either there's a specific way to do solids or I think they want to know that if you give them solids, they'll sleep. Yeah. Or they can stop breastfeeding so much or they can stop giving bottles. Yeah. It's it's that amount of time from newborn the novelty has totally worn off. Yeah. You're kind of thinking okay let's let's see what happens next and we're getting there we're getting there we're getting there oh we're not getting there are we there's all the kind of the myths isn't there that if you give your baby if you feed them up before bed the concept that if you can give them some porridge before bed and you know you can't get that much into a baby anyway so what an, an, an extra 50 calories isn't going to suddenly make them sleep all night even if it was due to hunger if they were really waking up due to hunger that's not going to take them all the way through is it i'm just so, thinking how how hard i find to get to, find it to get to sleep on enchilada night when i'm stuffed <laughs> <laughs> well exactly it, it can go even more wrong that if you overfill a baby and and they end up in pain and unsettled then it's going to be an even worse night so your your book actually is really good because i was thinking oh how are we going to change the world who's got all the answers and actually this book it's small but it's dense with good stuff i would say it's nutritionally very um very efficient because it's got all the, all the information in there and actually if you could sit down and read this before you even started about starting solids it w gives a really sensible explanation for why you would do what, what we've just been saying um but i feel like only the people who already believe it will actually open it how are we going to change the world oh, i know I, I think it needs to be i think it needs to be read before you even start thinking about solids it might it might help before people start i think when your baby gets to about three or four months people suddenly start they they stop nagging you about breastfeeding and is your baby feeding all the time and they, they start nagging you about solids instead so maybe we need to buy it for uh 
grandparents and uh, other people who might nag and oh, say yeah. unhelpful things. The grey revolution of grandmothers who are in with online with uh, baby led weaning yes <laughs> brilliant idea right thank you so much for your time i'm going to let you go um and get on with your day because we're doing this at what seems to me to be the crack of dawn <laughs> not even nine o'clock yeah no, just gone um so thanks for your time enjoy arizona i will do and we'll, we'll have you back sometime yes thank you cheers amy okay. bye bye always good to hear amy she's never afraid to really to really clearly outline what the evidence seems to be saying uh, even though she she gets quite a lot of backlash on social media and she's not afraid to challenge um really deeply entrenched views yeah and starting solids is one of those areas where there are such very deeply entrenched views yeah, what, what's that about? I, I mean, I understand the formula companies and their follow-on milks and all of this sort of stuff and their commitment to extending the life of their customer. But what, why is there so much controversy about starting foods? Well, I think there's a two-pronged pressure. One, one is the sort of continuation of the baby food manufacturers wanting to sell us stuff. Um, you know, that she goes through in her book the long, long history of manufactured baby food and it's yeah. fascinating to see how deeply embedded that is in, in our culture it reminds me actually of a totally irrelevant thing which is how women started shaving their legs right because Bic wanted to double their market for razors no so I'll just leave that thought there with you but the other prong of of this is the cultural thing so mm. you know even if all baby food manufacturers tomorrow started following who code guidelines and not advertising baby food as suitable for being for babies under six months we would still have everybody not everybody obviously um oh, mums mothers-in-law grandmas little old ladies at bus stops um the health visitors um other parents saying yeah you should yeah. if this then you should start solids if your baby's not gaining weight gaining too much weight waking up at night crying a lot unsettled doing this doing that not doing this not doing that the answer must surely be starting solids and that's just complete nonsense in most cases and in fact often has the opposite effect of what's wished for yeah and and if my reading of the evidence is, is up to date, it can lead to later life bowel trouble. It can lead to a lot of later life things. It just just the overriding of, of baby's own sort of yeah. natural self-regulation. Very interesting. I noticed, and I, 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 I noticed the news item about the same-sex couple that were taking it in turns to breastfeed, all right? Mm. And it, it did prompt me, and I haven't gotten to the bottom of it, but in terms of the physiology... How does that work? Tell me about how the non-pregnant woman uh, can feed the baby. Okay, so just glossing over my lack of depth of knowledge in this, I know that it's to do with um, obviously um, building up the appropriate hormones and that um, usually you would need to take some sort of medication. I don't know whether that would be synthetic hormones or something like that. Um, and expressing um, oh, to, to build up a milk supply and obviously doing lots of skin to skin but okay. we all we know that 
um, it's not just the the birth mother who has oxytocin because fathers have it too. So yeah, she's course, got yeah. that powerful breastfeeding hormone. What she does need is lots of prolactin, the the other powerful breastfeeding hormone. So yeah, it, it's doable. And you know we know that there are rare cases of men lactating. So why shouldn't a woman, just because she hasn't had a baby? I I think it's really cool. It's it's very interesting on the feed that uh, a same sex couple. Um, both breastfeeding again managed to stir up a little bit of. Uh... Oh, I know. What's wrong with Why? people? Why though? I thought that was wow. They're celebrating something amazing, and some of the responses were, "Oh, I don't know why they have to advertise the fact." What is that about? I just don't get it it's at all. Imaginely, making a a big shift away from that news story towards um, the news story of. I am UK members. Yeah, tell me about that. Well, on, on the day of this recording, uh, the, the judicial review starts today, which is the 18th, and runs from the 18th to the 19th. Uh, and the court, the judge is going to make a, a, a decision regarding whether the NMC's decision not to allow the independent uh, Midwives UK uh, insurance cover to stand is legal so it's a big story because if if the nmc win today uh, today and tomorrow uh, the uk loses independent midwifery because there won't be any avenue for a woman to make a choice about uh employing her own midwife so today and tomorrow the 18th and the 19th are big days uh in midwifery history uh, and hopefully the judge rules in favor of im uk because midwifery in Great Britain needs an independent choice. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's really, yeah. really hope so. So we're rooting for them. We are. And um, yeah. Um, so while we're on the subject of politics, is this a good time to listen to Alison Thewlis? Alison Thewlis, what a lovely woman. Yes. So you met Alison where? Where? I was talking at a breastfeeding conference. I, I gave a speech on transforming breastfeeding culture, and she was introducing and comparing. Uh, the conference. I think she's a SMP MP, isn't yes, she? Yes, she is. And she's um, very, very keen to bring health and um, feeding and things like that into any bill that is that she possibly can. So, you know, really? if, if it, I, I can't even think of the examples and I don't need to because she's about to say so. Why don't I shut up and we'll listen to her? I'm Alison Zulis, I'm MP for Glasgow Central and I've been an MP now for two years and I chair the all-party group on infant feeding and inequalities. Right, hi Alison, thanks for talking to us today. Um, can you tell us about the work of the um, all-party group that you mentioned there? Well, the all-party group started um, after I um, had, had a debate on, well, on breastfeeding week in Parliament and after I had the debate, lots of people got in touch with me and said, oh, I'd love, to, you know, love, it's great that Parliament's talking about this, we'd love to do some more. So um, I chatted to some of the, the various different organisations and we agreed that an all-party group might be a way of um, looking at some of the, the issues around infant feeding um, and also taking into account the fact that um, there's huge inequality issues, inequality issues as well um, with people in, in poorer areas tending more to bottle feed and people in wealthier areas tending, tending to breastfeed. There were some issues there that people felt were, were worthy of further discussion. So we set up the group. We got lots of um, interested groups coming along to it. 
and it meets every two months or six weeks or so, depending on the parliamentary timetable. And we have a presentation from different organisations um, about the area of work that they are concentrated in. So we've had presentations from the Breastfeeding Network, from uh, First Steps Nutrition. We've had presentations on health inequalities and the impact that um, poverty has and on, young, on development. We've had, issue, we've had um, discussions about milk banking as well. So a whole range of different issues. Um, which are, is useful for the MPs that come along to the group just to get a kind of different perspective than they would usually get on some of these issues. And the, lots of issues as well that we can then go and take forward and pick up with health ministers or ask questions in Parliament or try and apply for debates and, and get things onto the agenda. Right, so the people who contacted you in the first place, are they all MPs and it's a group of MPs who are kind of now learning about no, this stuff? No, it's, it's kind of interested organisations. So for right. like um, the Breastfeeding Network were in touch with me um, and I got in touch with um, UNICEF Baby Friendly and various other different types of groups um, and individuals as well got in touch to see oh, it's good to get um, this on the agenda at Westminster. This isn't something that MPs have generally talked about, which surprised me actually, because I thought, I thought you know, how babies are fed ought to be quite an important issue. Um, but um, apparently that hadn't really been um, picked up to any great extent in Parliament so it's been something I've been quite keen to and that nobody else had been talking about it try and get this um, try and get infant feeding talked about more often Yeah it's brilliant to raise this I know um, in the past for various campaigns and things I've emailed my MP and had very shall we say lukewarm responses but mm. <laughs> I'm in Wokingham and my MP's John Redford so what would you expect? Oh goodness <laughs> yeah um, and it has been I know some people that come along to the group have, have tried to encourage the MP to get involved and for various reasons perhaps they haven't and that can be quite frustrating um, I think they, there are more MPs that are picking up on it as an issue and we were starting talking about wider health issues so you're talking about um, issues like a child obesity where you're talking about diabetes where you're talking about other kind of health related issues there is a way in which you can draw in the way that babies are fed to begin with and the way that pregnancy and childbirth and early years all tie in together and forming that experience. So is that the way to tackle it, do you think, where people, where it's something that hasn't crossed somebody's radar and sometimes kind of immediately launching into why breastfeeding matters can seem, I don't know, a bit extreme, is, is going to the sort of um, health inequalities and long-term health effects a better way in? I think it is. And my colleague, Philippa Whitford, is very keen on the notion of uh, health in all policies. So she wants to talk about the impact that you know all different kinds of government policies has on health. And there's issues here as well that are wider issues than just um, infant feeding. So if you're talking about you know, why people don't choose to start breastfeeding, perhaps that is because they've never seen anybody do that in their neighbourhood because there's a strong bottle feeding culture and um, because women have to go back to work. They can't afford to take, you know, a year's maternity leave or even six months maternity leave because they have to work and they have to bring income into the house. So there's all kinds of other issues which affect families and women um, more widely. So you might be talking about maternity rights, you might be talking about maternity discrimination, you might be talking about... Um, the way in which women are treated in the workplace and society more generally. You might be talking about wider issues about um, women's bodies and people being shamed for their, for uh, breastfeeding in public or uh, all different kinds of societal attitudes as well. So there's definitely implications in, in, in other policy areas. And I feel as though, as the chair of the all-party group, I've got um, a bit of a locus then to sort of find ways of talking about this. So we had, um, quite a while ago now, a debate on child obesity, 
and joined together some of the information that's, that's out there. I started talking about, well, actually it matters how babies are fed, you know, early habits are brought up, the way that um, uh, the information that families receive as well and how they receive that information, whether it's through health visitors or through word of mouth or the kind of attitudes that are picked up. So there's definitely ways in which you can bring this policy in and actually go, this does matter, this is a societal issue. Yeah, because it's so frustrating when there's discussion in the media and on the news about things like increasing obesity rates, um, discussion about cot death is one of the ones, and the the really, really important issues are, are talked about, and there's this big negative space where breastfeeding should be. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the time when I've tried to discuss different issues in, in the media, it's become down very much to women's own personal experience and how they feel about breastfeeding and there's an awful lot of angst and all the rest of it around you know decisions that people made or things that they did or ways in which they felt as though they'd been let down and I want to very much say that I'm you know don't want to get into those kinds of debates because I don't mm. want to, for people to feel upset or um but it's just not helpful feel as though they haven't done the right thing yeah everyone makes the best decisions they can and everyone's choices and that need to be respected. And I absolutely appreciate that not everybody chooses to feed the babies the same way for very, very understandable and, and sensible reasons. Everyone does the best that they can. And I worry that when you get into these kinds of debates, the media like to set it up as breastfeeding against bottle feeding. It's so and that polarizing. doesn't help at all. It's so polarizing and it upsets people and it doesn't help at all to help um, to help anybody really. No. Are you aware of the change the conversation hashtag? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's that's really been quite powerful as well because um, I know lots of people in the sector feel as though that it just constantly becomes this kind of um, this very, very narrow debate rather than about being the wider societal um, issue of yeah. how you feed your babies. It's so important to take the emphasis off individual mothers. Yeah, absolutely. And because individual mothers will make the choices they do, but those choices are kind of formed more widely by the society around them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was reading your bill yesterday, because, <laughs> yeah, um, and I was, I and I have a, only a very vague knowledge of what the process is, but I understand it's been read once in the House of Commons, and then it was supposed to be read again, but wasn't because of the election. Is that right? Um, yes, yeah, so there's different bills in the House of Commons, um, which is a bit, a bit of a geeky issue, but um, there's different ways that pe- the bills can be brought forward, and one of the options that's open to MPs is called a 10-minute rule bill, and it's very much you know, the, the smallest of the, the potential bills that you can bring through the House. And it allows an MP to present a bill to the House of Commons and say, you know, I would like the House's approval to take this forward. And it got through that first stage, um, which was good, because sometimes they don't. And it then went on with the potential of going a wee bit further, but um, they kind of, because it is a very small bill, and because of the way that the parliamentary system works, which is a very Byzantine, bizarre way of trying to organise yeah. business, there wasn't a huge amount um, of a chance that it would actually end up in the statute books. But for my purposes, it was about getting the issues debated more widely. Yeah. And part of the issue for infant feeding in the UK is that it's not really anybody's priority. And in speaking to organisations like UNICEF Baby Friendly, they felt as though if there was some kind of national board with oversight on infant feeding, you know, making it a priority, seeing well, what's happening in different parts of the country, is there a postcode lottery in support? Is there more that we could be doing to support um, mums? Is there enough impartial advice out there as well? Mm. Because for 
so I did a consultation on the issue and launched the bill, did a consultation, got lots of feedback. And what lots of bottle feeding mums were finding was that they don't get enough impartial advice and sometimes the healthcare professionals that they deal with. Um, what the parents were sometimes looking for was, could you recommend me a formula? And the healthcare professionals were like, well, we can't because that's not, not, not something that we are permitted to do. So the parents were often choosing formula by word of mouth, by experience um, of having used different formulas, by, by the advertising, um, by the things produced by the companies, by things on the television, by the way that it looked on the shelf, by the price, um, by people saying, oh, that was the most expensive one, so it must be the best. And none of those things are really the best way to choose. And again, the, the poorest families are the ones losing out. Yeah. And they will lose out, or they will pay more money for something that they think that they desperately need, um, and make cuts in other places to do so. So it's 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 pretty damaging. Um, and you've also got companies that are investing a lot of money in advertising and investing a lot of money in trying to be the you know the best, the most advanced, the you know, whatever it happens to be, the new um, thing of the week, and um, that we have in our product that makes us special. Um, but there, was n- there is no kind of oversight of that by government, because all the infant formulas by regulation are pretty much the same. They have to have the same basic standards. But you've got organisations that can put on the television and say, oh, it needs you know, all the iron your baby needs, for example. And most of the iron in follow-on milks, because that's what they're, they're advertising, they're allowed to advertise the earliest milks, you would get from your diet anyway. You know, a healthy, balanced diet would get you all the, in- the nutrients for your baby that you need. But that, there isn't a kind of counterpoint to that in the advertising. So when you're allowed to advertise, you're allowed to make these claims. There was nobody saying, well, actually, you know, this is what this is what you actually need. You don't need this product. Follow-on formula is kind of a, an invention by the industry so that they can advertise um, and they put a lot of effort into doing so. So there's not enough impartial information out there for parents to be able to challenge these things, to get the information that they need to be able to make informed decisions. So part of the purpose of the bill was to set up a a structure which would support parents and support health professionals as well um, in order to make sure that the, the best information, the most impartial information and advice gets to the people that need it the most. So what's the status of that then? So the, because the end of the parliamentary term was reached and because there was an election, the bill falls um, and it can't progress any further. But in having done the work, you know, we went off um, and wrote the bill you know, we put the clauses in a way which you know, can, could be formed into legislation. We've done that work. We've done the consultation as well. So now what I would look for is opportunities perhaps to put in this into some other bills. So say there was a bill on childhood obesity or a bill on food labelling, which may happen as part of the kind of Brexit process and so we'll need to get a regime for food labelling. So you might want to put, you know, different aspects of um, how infant formula tins look into that as well. So you might want to have country of origin status, for example, um, on there, as you might have, well, it's entirely possible. I'd like to be an optimist on these things, but something might. Um, and we could do these things, I suppose, just now if we wanted to. Um, but it's looking at opportunities now within any sort of legislation that the government brings forward to see, well, ah, could I put in this amendment here, which is a perfectly reasonable amendment, which would enhance this bill. And having done the work, it gives me that opportunity to then speak to, to, gov- to the government, to ministers, and say, well, here's an opportunity to look at this particular aspect you might not have thought of. So you're basically inserting it into every piece of legislation you can find. Oh, I'm looking for opportunities to do so, yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. If it's it's completely, um, if it's a bit aviation, that might be a bit more difficult, I suppose, but I'll I'll try. (laughs) I think that's great. I'm really glad you're doing it. Thank you. Um, 
Is there anything else you would like to say while you have um, our 500 listeners? <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I think it's, it's great that you've got this this uh, this broadcast, and I think that's a really interesting way of getting different information out to people as well in a, um, a more fun and, and formal kind of way than um, traditional kind of media stuff. So well done on doing that. But also just to say that please get in touch with the, the all-party groups. They, there's information on my website about that. Um, engage with your local MPs. You know, if you're involved in a local um, infant feeding group, invite your MP along. Babies, you know, notoriously like to get their pictures taken with um, grinning babies, so please do that. Um, ask us um, to come along to things. Uh, raise any concerns about cuts um, that are happening to support seri- services in your area and raise examples of good practice as well make sure that this becomes on MPs' agendas because we go very much by what happens um, in our inboxes. So, you know, 38 Degrees have a huge petition about um, bumblebees and we all get interested in bees and um, new nicotinoids and things like that. So, you know, why can't infant feeding be an issue of such great importance yeah. as well? Yeah, absolutely. So your website is alisontheolis.scot, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So people can have a look there and see what they can get involved. Yeah, so there's information there. There's um, an all part, the all-party group has a Twitter as well. So it's at Giffy, so it's um, it's online as well, and we'll tweet kind of updates from the, the meetings too. So if you're kind of not able to get along, the Twitter feed um, has lots of information there too. That's great, thank you. Thank you very much for sparing us a little bit of time. Not at all. It's really interesting to speak to you. Cheers, Alison. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I really appreciated Alison Thewlis MP giving us the opportunity to um, just listen to what she had to say about how changes are made in parliament and she's really one of the people who actually can do something fundamental to change the culture around feeding so brilliant brilliant very good indeed yeah nice of her to come on the show very nice of her well you know she thought she was going to talk to you ah i don't know they always do (laughs) it's a bait and switch thing that we operate here are we at the point where i ask you what's inspired you lately karen okay so what has inspired me quite a few things i was at a conference about the the infant trial does that mean anything to you about ctg monitoring the say it again infant no, doesn't mean. So anything. I, mi- I missed the first few minutes. So I don't know what it stands for. <laughs> All right, what's, what's but that it about was a, a trial of um, the the software that does mm. um, continuous monitoring and um, prompts um, decision making during labour according to how the baby's heart rate is responding, um, yeah. and it it showed all kinds of interesting things, including basically a, a a lack of evidence that there's any positive outcome from routine continuous monitoring of low risk risk women, other than a slight reduction in the number of seizures and an increase in the number of cesarean births. Yeah, we've we've known that for a long time, Karen. Well, it's nice to have somebody standing up there and saying, "Look, here's some." very high quality evidence <laughs> of just that. The the thing that inspired me about the day was being in a conference organised by NCT and University of Birmingham but with lots of people from all the different areas of maternity care. So we had obstetricians, we had neonatologists spoke and that was fascinating and I was thinking we need to get one on um, broadcast. Yeah. We had a doula speaking. We had an NCT antenatal teacher said something. We had Millie Hill there. Um, So she was giving kind of the woman's voices sort of view of it. People were very respectful, but there was quite lively discussion about how we support women to make decisions and empower them to do what's right for them in 
labour so that they are comfortable and they continue to feel a sense of autonomy and control. So that was quite inspiring to me. How about you, Mark? What has inspired you lately? What's been inspiring me? I I was inspired on Monday. I know I've already spoken about uh, the study day I did with students in Swansea, but there was 30 uh, women uh, from, you know, loads of different backgrounds, uh, various ages, you know, across the age spectrum, uh, all of them totally committed to becoming midwives. And I, I do find that inspiring. You know, when, when I'm up to my neck in the evidence and debates on social media and strongly held opinions being being um, being expressed, you know, when I, I speak to midwives regularly who are struggling with stress related problems because of, you know, working in the NHS. And then you sat in front of 30 people who have made enormous sacrifices to enter a profession where they're hardly going to be paid a living wage. Well, it's. It, don't get me wrong it's not a bad bad wage but it's not a great wage it's not a great wage when you consider you know the kind of academic uh, performance of those that get into midwifery they could choose loads of other different professions and uh, i find that inspiring bit cheesy but inspiring no i think that's great and also i just need to um, acknowledge that i've nicked the question what has inspired you lately from another podcast called on the tipping point by my colleague sherry bevan and sue revel and they are both um, coaches they do coaching and mentoring and it's a really interesting podcast so i'm just going to sneak that in there as well yeah what's it called on the tipping point i'll check that out i recommend it check out the episode on the power of language you will love it yeah, are they? So, if you have any suggestions or comments, do get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, that's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, go on, you know, you, you go ahead and leave us a review. Uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.